Father, we thank you that you are not hiding from us. You have told us who you are, that you have told us what your kingdom looks like in your Son and in these words of your Son. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to receive news that is better than we might have hoped for this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things in expectancy that you will hear. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the midst of this Lenten season, uh, my family is doing some of the typical spiritual disciplines, some of the, the painful stripping disciplines in preparation for Easter. But there is one area in which we're going against the grain. We are watching more TV, not less. Specifically, my wife Sarah and I decided that a helpful Lenten discipline for us would be to stop playing the word games on New York Times together every night, RIP Wordle and Connections, and instead watch just a bit of The Chosen every night, the streaming series about Jesus' life and ministry. Now, I'll be honest, I was very hesitant to watch it, even though lots of people have told me great things, uh, simply because so much of Christian media is theologically poor, historically inaccurate, and emotionally inauthentic. I have opinions, if you can't tell. <laughs> and there are definitely ways they've taken significant liberties to fill in the story. But I, I got to be honest, I have loved it more than I thought I would, mainly for the ways that it's revealing my assumptions that I bring to the story. Because what will happen is I'll often see them do something differently than I had imagined it in my head, and I think, now, did I, did I imagine it that way because of what the Scriptures actually say? Or did I just imagine it that way because of some assumption I brought to the Scriptures? The most jarring challenge to my assumptions has been just how happy Jesus is in The Chosen how much he smiles and laughs and dances, at least in season one. No spoilers, please. That's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> it's made me realize how much my default picture of Jesus, sort of serious, maybe serene, maybe even a, a touch emotionally removed, and when he's not that perhaps even sad or angry. Perhaps you have a similar picture of Jesus. It would make sense if you did, because there are specific instances in the Gospels where it says that, that, that Jesus is sort of holding steady when everyone around him is like really upset or off kilter. There are specific instances in the Gospels where Jesus gets sad or angry, but there aren't any places where he's specifically said to be laughing, or where it records him dancing, for example. Now, I think there's a reason why his emotions are recorded the way they are. It's a serious journey. Right, this stepping into all that is not as it should be. He's, he's stepping into a world where tyrants reign and death pervades and hearts are hard. Like there's more than enough reason for the, sons of God, for the Son of God to be sad or angry. There's more than enough reason to mourn or to turn over tables. But as I've been reflecting on this, I've realized that there's also more than enough to conclude that Jesus is indeed full of joy. Even that perhaps it's a defining trait of his character. 
Right? Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, right? And in ways that no one ever has been full of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, Paul says, is joy. Children were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to be around him. And children aren't drawn to serene or boring or sad or angry people. (laughs) And we have stories like our story today. Stories which Jesus tells which you could not possibly say with a dour face. Stories which you can't imagine someone saying angrily or, or serenely. Because they're stories of divine heavenly joy. Not just the joy we feel in being found by God, but the joy He feels in finding us. Okay, let's take a step back for a minute and get the bigger picture to see what I'm talking about. Last week, Pastor Daniel preached on the shepherd chasing down the lost sheep, what the kids are talking about today, leaving the 99 behind to go and find the wanderer. Now, this week's story has a lot of similarities. There's something lost, there's a pursuit to go find it, but there are also some important differences. This week, the lost thing is not a sheep, but a coin. As Daniel pointed out last week, sheep are dumb and a hassle. It's a bit of an insult to be like, oh, I'm a sheep in this story, but a coin, a coin has value. A coin is beautiful and shiny and important and and, and, and valuable. Then there's this shift in numbers, right? When there's 99 sheep that are found and one that is lost, it makes it a bit ridiculous that the shepherd would pursue. Like, why would he leave the 99? That's dumb. The only reason he would go is because of his own character, because this is who he is. That's what that story is trying to get at. But one coin out of ten, that's quite a lot. The Old Testament scriptures called for a tithe, giving 10%, one out of ten, to God as an act of worship because it was hard. It was a lot. Today, Christians on average barely give 2% of their income away because one out of ten is a lot. Letting go of one out of ten is giving away a lot of value, so it, it actually makes sense. That, that this woman would sweep the house, search diligently, try her best to find that coin, because that's a lot of money to miss out on. And friends, those details are important, because in them, Jesus is saying that you are valuable like that coin. That you matter to God because of who you are. He's saying that you are a person of worth, a beautiful creation, a beloved child that has been lost and can be found. God comes after you not just because he is good and glorious and kind and compassionate, but also because you are valuable and you matter to him. And we see this same idea emerging in others of Jesus' parables. One example, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And some of you know this story. I had always read that story as if we were the one who discovers the treasure of God, the treasure of the kingdom of God lying hidden in a field, right? We come upon goodness of, of, of God hidden in plain sight, and then we give everything else away so we can go back and buy that field and gain that treasure. 
That's true, perfectly legitimate reading, but there's another perfectly legitimate reading. To read that we are the treasure. That the Son of God came and found us, buried in guilt and shame and loneliness and loss, and that He gives up everything He has to uncover us and take us for Himself. Jesus is saying that you are that coin, that you are that treasure. And that Christ, like a woman keeping house in the ancient Near East, is going to do everything to find you. Light the lamp, sweep the house, search carefully, go over every inch to proclaim as his own. Because you matter. And being lost does not make you matter less to him. If anything, it makes you matter more. Now, this came home to me a few years ago through an experience I had camping in Arches National Park. We were way back in the park near Sand Dune Arch. If you've ever been there near Moab, you might know this spot. Um, Sand Dune Arch is in a slot canyon. There are these two huge sandstone fins, kind of like Garden of the Gods. Um, But there's a a massive sandbox that is sort of developed between them. There's sand as deep as you can dig between those two fins. And right in the middle of the sandbox is this massive boulder, a boulder that the decades of rock climbing to climb from all sides. It's, it's, it's such a fun rock to mess around on. It's probably a little bit taller than me, so you're never like super in danger, but there's all kind of interesting routes up and up and down. So one day as we were camping, I, I went over there by myself, get a little time by myself to climb, which meant... I had to take off my wedding ring and stick it in my pocket. You already know where this story is going, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just telegraphed out for you. I lost the ring. Must have fallen out of my pocket as I was hanging on the rock. Uh, and I searched and I dug through the sand all around and the sun started going down and, and I still couldn't find it. So I slunk back to the camp, defeated, and my, and my heart did something interesting in that moment. To cope with that loss, I started to tell myself that the ring didn't matter. Just a ring, right? Just a piece of metal, no big deal. I told Sarah, you know, tried to play it off like this is a sad thing, you know, but not that big of a deal. I think looking back that we can see how we do that with ourselves, right? Something gets lost, and we play it off. Somebody hurts us, and we're like, oh, it's fine. I'll get over it. We mess up, and we go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that important in the big scheme of things. I'm just a mess up. I'm always going to be a mess up. I'm, I'm on the B team. Like, this is just what we can expect from me. See, we degrade our own value. We undercut our own worth to ease the pain of being lost. When I told Sarah this, Sarah's response to me was clear. Tomorrow morning, we're going to go find that ring. I said, babe, like, it's no big deal. It's fine. I know I'm not very good at looking, but I like, really tried on this one. Like, I don't think we're going to find it. She said, tomorrow morning, we're going to go find it. I protested. She persisted. And the next day, my wife, my girls, and I were all back around that boulder in the slot canyon 
And I will admit to you with shame that I didn't look. Because I had given up. My heart had hardened, had turned off to the finding of it. But she got down on her hands and knees, digging through the sand, picking up sand in one hand, letting it slide through her fingers. Next hand through her fingers, all, all the way around the boulder. She got back to where she had started, and I was like, we're done. It's okay. It's time to give up. She kept going. And right there at the beginning of lap two, she found it. A few inches down, she found it. When she found it, friends, something welled up in my heart in that moment that I did not expect. So much joy. I had tried to forget how valuable that ring was to me, but I was lying to myself. It was in the finding that I recognized the value of fresh. It was in the finding that this joy welled up. Now, when we talk about joy, sometimes that, uh, that, 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 that finding has laughter in it, sometimes it has tears in it, sometimes it has both. Joy is the inevitable fruit of that reunion. Joy is the overflow of the finding. And when you think about the number of people in the world and the number of ways we get lost and the number of ways he finds us again and again and again, because he's not like me. He doesn't give up. He doesn't forget how valuable we are to him. That joy has to be a defining marker of the heavenly places. It has to be a defining marker of God's life. Scripture even says that it was the joy of that union that drove Jesus, uh, that, that held him up as he moved forward in what he was doing for us. I remember Hebrews 12, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was that joy? I'm sure like reunion with the Father was part of it, but what does Luke 15 say was the joy that was set before him? It was finding us. It was reconciling us. It was reuniting with us. What kept him going through the pain and agony of the cross was the joy of knowing and finding you. Which makes me wonder how the new creation is going to be. Right? There'll be so much happy crying that I feel like the Father's going to have to come in and clarify. Now, when I no more tears in the new creation. That was like just bad tears. When we see Christ face to face, there's going to be some melting into puddles. There's going to be some laughing with giddiness. There's going to be some dancing, and we're going to go through the cycle, and then we'll start over. But we don't have to wait till then to taste that joy. Because now that he's found you, he does not keep that joy to himself. That's part of how joy works, right? It doesn't stay easily locked up inside. It leaks out. Sometimes it springs up and abundantly overflows. When Sarah was searching for that ring, all kinds of curious. They were sort of watching. And when she found it, this big shout went up. It was glorious. 
In Luke 15, the joy of the finding overflows to the angels in the heavenly places. Now, not to get like deep theology, there are both angels that serve as messengers from God to humans and angels permanently reside in the heavenly court that spend their days praising God, beholding His glory, reveling in His goodness, just enjoying the joy of God. And when someone welcomes His claim, when someone is found, is reunited with the Maker, the, the joy on His face lights up their faces. Friends, we have no idea how what happens here affects the emotional temperature of the heavenly realms. What occurs here stirs up the praises of heaven. Our minds like bend the thought of that. But our hearts can also share in it. Probably the, the, the easiest in to this overflowing divine joy is when we get to be alongside as someone is found. You may, and I hope you do, have stories of this. In, in, in my role, I get a seat in all kinds of conversations, and, and some of the most joyful are the ones when someone is turning light, when they're releasing their grip on who they've been so they can become who they're meant to be. Sometimes that shows up as it does in this passage on the coin in moments of confession and repentance. I was asked the other day in a class if it's ever hard to hear confessions. And I thought, yeah, it, it can be. But when I think of hearing confessions, when I think of getting to be alive as people are opening themselves to the Father in this way, I, heart is not the first thing, of, thing I think of. Joy is the first thing I think of. Because so often there's something locked up, something trapped underneath for so long, so, so many months and years that has just grown toxic. And, and to see the light shine in, it's almost magical to know that there's no going back to the time before that moment. There's no going back into the darkness of hiding. There might be new things that enslave, there might be ways the consequences of that sin still continue, but that brokenness is never going to be hidden in the dark again. It is a one-way street. It's kind of like witnessing birth. Like, yeah, it's bloody and painful but also so deeply joyous. Getting to be alongside for that is one of the greatest gifts that any of us can experience. And that's why in this Lenten season, we've created those, those booklets for household confession as a way of inviting all of us into that joy. But I will also say that that experience doesn't feel so joyous to the one who's giving birth. To the one who's in the space of confessing and repenting and turning back to God. Repentance doesn't really strike us as a fun and joyous word. Because there's some hard things wrapped up in it. There's a recognition that there's this not only darkness out there, but a darkness within, that I am not as I am supposed to be. There's 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 this, this courage to bring that reality out into the light, even there's embarrassment and guilt that come from making it known. Then there's that hard work changing day after day, year after year. This is long slog of living differently, which sometimes can feel so hard it feels impossible. 
often we actually feel our worst right as we come up to those moments of repentance. We feel the least worthy, the least valuable that we ever feel. But as we speak our sin, as we say our lostness, we find that maybe we had grown a little too comfortable in that dark, dusty corner. Maybe we had grown a little bit content following through the cracks in the floorboards. And when we taste that light, we realize it's so much better being found. It is so much better being rejoiced over, so much better knowing our value and our worth and being made free to actually live in it. Repentance is not the groveling that we have no value. It is the rejection of all that devalues us. It's the rejection of all that would seek to make us less than we were meant to be. Repentance is not beating ourselves up. It is actually the rejection of despair. It is the doorway of hope that things can and will be different. Repentance is the invitation to leave behind that dark corner we've been stuck in and join the party. And we all have those dark corners that we're stuck in. We all have those places of sin and brokenness that we carry with us. Maybe it's like big glaring ones like addiction or sexual sin. Maybe it's more respectful, respectable ones like bitterness or greed or cynicism or just sheer apathy. There's a lot of ways to be lost. But friends, just as there is joy set before Jesus, there is a joy that is set before you. There is a joy set for us this day, this opportunity to be reunited with the one who gives us value, who never forgets our value, and has done everything to come and find us and bring us back to himself because he values us. Now, in that repentance, we are going to have to come face to face with our guilt and, and, and shame and the embarrassment and the consequences. But in that repentance, we also come face to face with our Father. And friends, what Jesus is trying to tell us in this story, what he's trying to tell us in this passage is that when we turn around and face him, he is smiling. He's ugly crying. And maybe like when, when we can start to join in a little bit, he's laughing and he's dancing. There's this old trope that false religion is I'm in trouble, what if my dad finds out? But the gospel of Jesus is I'm in trouble, I've got to find my dad. Friends, when we turn to him, the smiling face of our father is already torn toward us. In fact, sometimes it's actually believing that it's not a lecture that awaits us, but an embrace that is the only thing that can keep us moving forward, keep us pressing forward, keep us failing and falling forward into his joy. I mean, the irony of this is, right, that so many of us, and I put myself in this camp, live as if the goal of life is never to mess up. 
So when we do, we stuff it down and we keep it hidden. The consequence is that we miss out on the joy of the Father. Friends, the joy we seek comes not from never being wrong. The joy we seek comes not from never being lost, as if that's even possible. The joy comes in being found. May we receive that joy afresh so that we can join a party that is already in progress and that's just missing us. Let's pray. Father, In these moments, we come before you just to say that there are maybe the whole of us or maybe just parts of us, but for each one of us that are lost, that are in those dry, dusty corners, that may not even be sure how much we want to be found. Would you give us a holy imagination? for your love for us, for our value to you, and for the joy you have at finding us. In those places that we are scared to go, would you give us courage to go there? Because of your face waiting for us on the other side. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.